0: Set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle. Take off that raincoat and grab a cold beer. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. You're listening to Bruise and Tiny Teeth, the Unfiltered Pediatric
1: Dentistry Podcast. All right, we're often uh, we're often recording. So I, I was trying to think of how I could start this conversation with you, Kevin, and I thought of something that that might be kind of funny. But I went to the break room over lunch to get something to eat, and in the hurry of rushing out the the door um, to the office this morning, I forgot to grab my lunch. So I ended up having a protein shake and then an orthodontist dropped off a big cookie cake for like a one year anniversary. So I, you know, I, I gave in and I had a big chunk of cookie cake. And then I started wondering, I'm like, you know, I wonder when the last time you've eaten like a slice of pizza or like had a slice of cake, like when's the last time you had a slice of cake?
0: Oh, like an actual slice of cake. It's, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Probably I've I've had a taste of cake here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, special occasions, but actually like a real eating, like a real dessert like that. It's probably been a while.
1: Has <laughs> it been? Did, like, I'm just curious how strict to this carnivore diet, which we're going to talk about, like you stick to, cause you definitely seem to practice what you preach, but do you occasionally get to have like a cheat day where you'll get like a pizza or you'll, you'll go out to eat and kind of, you know, binge a little bit or how, how, how much, how flexible are you with this diet? Yeah. So uh,
0: I guess for a little bit of context, I've, I've really been like a health nut for like a long time carnivore mm-hmm. mostly for six maybe seven years now It's a pretty long time but it goes mm-hmm. extends back quite a bit further than that so I've never I haven't eaten a, a significant amount of junk food in a long time I don't ever have cheat days mm-hmm. um, maybe I'll have for example uh, I had my brother's got six kids <laughs> and they're all under eight years old so on a special occasion maybe I'll try a piece of cake here and there but mm-hmm. I stay pretty strict to the diet I know this is a uh, we're supposed to have a like a drink while we, while we have we this talk. I, I, I don't drink either. And it's kind of a similar reason being, you know, I don't drink because really the cost benefit analysis switched for me, like feeling good in the morning is far more valuable to me than like having a few hours of fun at night, generally speaking. And so it, similar with food is, you know, if I eat something and my digestion's off, my sleep's bad and it just cascades from there. Uh, there are certain things that are not on my typical diet that I'll eat here and there. Like some ice cream would like with, if it's mainly mostly cream and sugar and not a lot of any additives and things like that, I can do fine with that, but yeah, yeah. pretty strict.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. Well, initially I was trying to see if we could do this after work where I could do like a beer or whiskey, but, um, you know, I, I, you're not the first like friend I have that's like really uh, strict on the diet side of things. But, you know, I've, I've done some homework before on the drinking thing. Cause I'm, I'm like a one in like one, maybe two drink and done type of guy, like either a little craft beer or like a little pour whiskey and, and that's it. But to make myself feel better, like when you, when you take the survey and it asks how many drinks a week do you have, you know, and it'll be like one to two or seven to 10. And you're like, Oh God. But, um, <laughs> you know, I've done some, some pub netting before and I make myself feel better by like, I found quite a few studies that are like, you know, as long as you're very in moderation, like a couple drinks a week, they, they don't see a lot of like comorbidities with like people still live, you know, seem to be pretty healthy, but there's a threshold, you know, just like everything, everything kind of in moderation, but it seems like there's a, a pretty healthy level of drinking that once you cross over that it becomes a problem, which is a lot of things in the dieting world.
0: I agree with that hundred percent. And I definitely don't advocate people have to eat like meat uh, at all. I think a lot of people would benefit if they skew their diet a little bit in another direction a little bit mm-hmm. uh but definitely like just eating meat for 98 percent of your meals most people don't need to do that right. uh but i do think a lot of people could do that mm-hmm. uh yeah but drinking similar similarly it's like there is likely a moderation which is probably variant from person to person of, Sure. hey i can get away with a couple drinks a week and someone else maybe not as much but probably a lot of people can do mo- in that in moderation
1: yeah. So let's uh, let's back up. And I, I, I didn't get a lot of your professional history and I wanted to get you uh, up to speed here because uh, I don't know if I told you this, but I got your recommendation from an anesthesiologist that comes and does helps me with these sedations that I do in office. He was like, hey, do you know of uh, Kevin Stock? He's in the area. I was like, no, I, I hadn't heard of him. He's like, well, you're a big hunter. I know you like barbecue eating a lot of meat. and like, I'm shocked you don't know about this guy. So he was going on because I think he listened to you speak at some point and I was like, Oh man, this guy's in St. Louis. I got to hit him up. And I thought at first you were maybe a pediatric dentist because of the airway thing. And I know you see a lot of kids, but, um, I was curious if you could kind of update me, uh, what your dental background was, like where you went to school at, you know, are you practicing now? Do you pick up a handpiece still kind of get me up to speed with what your professional career is looking like?
0: Yeah, I've had a untraditional dental career path thus far. I graduated from UMKC in 2013 and I'm not a pediatric specialist, but I do pediatric dentistry and I mm-hmm. still do pediatric dentistry tomorrow. I'm actually going out to Bourbon, Missouri. And I work for this company called Smile America Partners. They basically will send me out to rural Missouri juvenile detention centers where there's not a lot of dental access, a lot of Medicaid patients. And so I do that very part time. I was doing it two days a week. It moved down to one day a week during COVID. Uh, so I'm doing one day a week right now. I might move back up to two days a week of actually treating children. Uh, so that's as, as far as restorative dentistry. I do that. Also, when I graduated dental school, I started a private practice where I were just exclusively treating sleep-disordered breathing, so sleep apnea, snoring to sleep apnea, and because I was very interested in airway health, I uh, fell down the rabbit hole. And long story short, that's been the other area of dentistry I've gone. And so those have been my two main areas. And then nutrition has kind of encompassed both dentistry, but also just kind of my life, my as it, my adult life. I've always been interested in nutrition. I've done bodybuilding competitions. I, I was very interested in nutrition from like a body competitions standpoint when i was younger did bodybuilding competitions now i'm much more interested i am still interested in body composition you know building muscle losing fat that kind of thing but also more so i'll say on the health aspect of well you know nutrition for a healthy mouth nutrition for for me most importantly like a healthy brain meaning like so i can perform i have a very busy schedule all these projects i'm working on i want to perform my best every day so yeah nutrition in a different light now that you know i'm a little bit older but yeah nutrition has been a big part of my life for a long time researching it experimenting with it etc
1: Mm -hmm. that's interesting you know you don't hear a lot of guys that that you you hear a very few dentists that get out of dental school and start a practice right away and even fewer that start an airway focused practice like that's a pretty uncommon thing so what did did you do any ce stuff was this like an interest you had in dental school or what kind of uh, education background i guess because you don't get a lot of that in dental school as you and i both know so like what was your background from that and then how did you tell me about getting that practice up and going and what that looked like yeah so in dental school
0: (sighs) So was a rude awakening in dental school. Sometime in the first year, I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to drill and fill for 40 hours a week for the next 40 years. And By I don't know, I would mean, I'm pretty sure I don't want to do that. But, you know, I got my degree in chemistry in college. I had a minor in biology. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. I don't have any other plans. I'm just interested in health and fitness. So I'm going to keep on this trajectory. And I think, you know, I don't actually know when I was introduced to dental sleep medicine, but I fell down the rabbit hole and, you know, basically... Sleep apnea is traditionally treated with CPAP machines. Over 50% of people that are diagnosed with it can't even use it. Dentists have this novel treatment option with these oral devices uh, that most people seem to be able to tolerate. It seems to like be a good treatment option. And I was like, they've got this huge problem. We got a unique solution. A lot of dentists aren't doing this. Not a lot of startup costs going into, you know, basically I got to do impressions. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of diagnostic impressions, whatever. It's not So I, I wouldn't need as far as like starting up a practice, I, you know, did some math. I'm like, I don't think it'll cost that much. Let's, let's just give this a go. I literally don't know. I didn't know anyone that had ever done. I knew some dentists that had sleep aspects combined to their dental practices, their general practice. Mm -hmm. And some people that kind of separated the two, but I've never heard of anyone like just start one. But I was like, I'm pretty sure it's not illegal for me to do this (laughs) so so why not and so yeah i did some ce the summer after graduating dental school back in 2013 Uh, i did a bunch of different weekend courses um, and then dove right literally just dove right in and made all the mistakes you can possibly make in a a very short amount of time which i think is a good thing expensive lessons tough lessons to learn but learn those lessons very quickly like not know because these are built under medical insurance, and I had zero background in medical insurance. And so, you know, my first probably 10 patients were on the house because I thought, you know, if I just build medical insurance and they're going to pay me. Right. And yeah, I learned about what deductibles were, what in network, out of network was. I learned those lessons real fast the hard way, but that, that's kind of what how that transition went.
1: Okay. So, uh, you know, at this point I'm guessing you still have that practice and have grown it and it sounds like you treat, you know, is, a fair amount of what you do and that developing practice, like kids in ortho work, airway expanders, do you do kind of ortho related things or are you mostly doing like adults and, um, you know, doing kind of more adult sleep apnea and kind of the diagnostic side of that, or like what, what kind of demographics are you doing now in that side of your practice?
0: So interesting question. So, uh, the pediatric dentistry i'm doing it tends to be medicaid rural low access and you know the first thing i do when i look in a child's mouth is like i'm looking at their airway i'm looking at their tongue i see they got vaulted palates their mouth breathing like all these issues but while i do talk to the kids about that it is uh it's not a, it's not a part of the practice like this right. we we are like restorative we're trying to just put out massive fires more or less with in, with that company
1: mm-hmm. uh
0: the adult practice sleep dental sleep medicine is for adults. I mean, so I, yeah, I'm not treating kids sleep apnea at all. Uh, <laughs> to make a long story short, uh, I was seeing patients for a number of years in my private practice. These oral devices can be very good, but they can also have limitations. And because of the limitations of oral devices, we can go into more details here if you're interested. But. Mm-hmm. It took me down a rabbit hole of like, I needed, I, was, I wanted to figure out some better way, something that I could add to the oral appliances to make them more effective. A quick example is like, I'll see a patient, they have severe sleep apnea and they're using a CPAP machine and it's, they're pretty much treated well, but they come in because they're like, I hate my CPAP machine. I want to use an oral device. And I'm like, well, you have a treatment that's working. I really don't want to take you off that, especially if this oral device is going to be less effective than what you're currently using, which a lot of times like, these oral devices are good for mild to moderate apnea and severe. Severe, you know, it's questionable, right? But it'll definitely improve severe. But if it's, is it going to have the efficacy of a CPAP machine? And a lot of times, it's not. So I am I was very hesitant, especially in this, this kind of patient population, of being like, yeah, let's take you off your CPAP device and use an oral appliance. Sleep physicians definitely don't want them doing that. Right. Uh, so anyways, I took me down a rabbit hole to developing this intranasal device. It's a nasal EPAP dilator. And to use in combination with an oral device so I can treat all severity levels of apnea. I can feel good about, you know, treating my patients and getting the efficacy that we need. And so... I went down that rabbit hole, long development history, got the patent for that device in 2020, spent the last couple of years prototyping it, developing it. Now we're basically commercializing it right now. So I have stopped seeing adult patients and really am focused on now doing pediatric dentistry part-time and then commercializing this intranasal device, which by the way, is not for sleep apnea. We're just marketing it as a, as a anti-snore device and dentists will be able to use it in combination with oral devices as well. But we're not getting FDA clearance for sleep apnea. Just to make that clear, we're not making any medical claims.
1: (laughs) No, that's fair. Like, so you said we could get into it if, if, uh, if we want to, and I, and I want to. So one of the big chunks of time I wanted to leave was having a conversation relating to, you know, obviously your passion for a carnivore diet, which I can let you speak on like what your diet looks like and maybe the benefits of it. Cause for a lot of people, you know, the idea of eating predominantly a meat-based diet seems like insane, inefficient, hard to do. Is it practical? You know, are there actually health benefits? Is it meat bad for you? All the things. So you can bust a few of those myths, but more so what I'm interested in, because I was doing some some prep work for this podcast and and, and diving into, you know, did our ancestors, you know, historically over thousands of years of development and evolution, you know, did we have cavities and did we have crowding and you know i'm i'd like you to speak on that a little bit because it seems like i was finding that we we do have some more recent ancestors like otzi the iceman had cavities but it does sound like crowding and like uh, you know a lack of arch space crowding high high vaulted uh pallets all the things that you were talking about impacted wisdom teeth seem to be a for uh, a a more modern occurrence and there's some different theories on that and i know you had some opinions there so i was kind of hoping you could kind of walk me some of that, because I wanted to leave a lot of time to, to talk about that. And, you know, is this something where we should be, um, you know, having our patients, you know, educating our patients more on this, if there's good evidence available. So let's, let's start and have that discussion.
0: For sure. I love dental archaeology and anthropology. Like that's what that's what I'm reading in my spare time is these dental anthropology textbooks. And I basically have this thesis that I've been working, like with this w- thesis for many years is that our mouth Tells us a lot about what we should and shouldn't be eating. And so, if we look back at, through the archaeological fossil rec- record, what we see is at the turn of the agricultural revolution, roughly 10,000 years ago, we have a dramatic rise in cavities. Prior to that, cavities are rare. Um, but in the archaeological record, when we see it with agriculture, we see a dramatic rise in cavities. And this is at the time where we move from hunter gatherers to agriculturists uh, with these agrarian cultures where we eat, start, start eating carbohydrate based diets fueled by grains. And so a lot of people think cavities are just simple sugars, X, Y, Z. But this is like before the processed flours, sugars, processed and refined carbs. This is like, you know, the grains out in the fields. And yes, we see the cavities rise with these, especially in the Americas with corn consumption cavities go through the roof. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's one big clue that you would think an ancestrally – Species-appropriate diet, the food you're eating is not going to cause the teeth, which are critical for survival <laughs> throughout history, to rot, right? That that would not work. Mother Nature, I think, is a little bit more intelligent than that. So uh, to me, that's a big red flag that maybe we're eating far too many carbohydrates because that's basically the, the etiology of decay. Bacteria ferment these carbohydrates into acids that hold in our teeth. So I think that's a strong argument for a low-carbohydrate diet. Maybe not a no-carbohydrate diet, but definitely a lower-carbohydrate diet than the modern diet. Uh, so we see that now with the industrial revolution, this is now we now we fast forward, you know, 19 or excuse me, 9,000 years plus to roughly the 1700s with the industrial revolution. Uh, we see a lot of the other things. Now, a lot of this research was, I'd say, marshaled in by Dr. Robert Corosini. I, I've studied his work tremendously. Uh, basically a lot of the malocclusion, the impact of wisdom teeth, um, we see with the, with the industrial revolution. This is when we start, refining foods start chewing a lot less and it's, it seems to be you know what what is the underlying cause and it, it seems to be perhaps two factor two factorial one is we're not chewing our foods like we're not straining the muscles that lead to proper complete jaw development so we are get, we're getting underdeveloped jaws but also a part of uh, it seems that nutritional inadequacies deficiencies can also play a role in our jaws not growing to i say their full genetic potential their full blueprint and so we have these Mouths that are too small where teeth erupt wherever they can find space, Uh, ectopic eruption, you know, wherever they can find space, we got to take wisdom teeth out. Orthodontics, we got to take teeth out, move everything back, which a lot of times makes things worse. So our mouths are already too small. And a lot of times with orthodontics, we're making the mouth even smaller, which increases the risk for airway issues. So, I mean, that's kind of the high level overview of how, kind of simplified version of how I view nutrition over kind of evolutionary time.
1: Hmm. Um, So- Is this something where, because this has happened, you know, in in the grand scheme of our species history, this has happened in a fairly short amount of time. You know, if you look at, uh, again, I looked up some things, but some of the records, fossil records, you know, they look at some of our ancestors and different homo erectus, and I can't quote it all, but they look at some of their skulls and they've got really nice, they have a lot of wear, a lot of attrition, you know, they wear those teeth down a lot, but all those arches are like perfectly symmetrical. Third molars fully erupt in plenty of room for everything. But then, like you said, last several hundred years, we've really seen a shrink there. Is that something where, is, is that still in our DNA where if, if the diet is optimized from birth you know, the theory that you maybe have or that supported is that we can develop our jaws to be bigger and have room and not have to take out teeth and headgear and impacted wisdom teeth and expanders. Um, or, or have there been enough uh generations of of humans reproducing where like we've started to kind of genetic like change our you know genetic uh, like our dna where we're kind of doomed to have the small jaw even if we you know these airway issues smaller jaws most likely even if we do put kids on uh you know a more natural high meat like tougher diet that they're chewing with you know is that is there is there hope for us that if the diet is corrected we can have room or is it likely that there's been like genetic and dna changes with maybe call it natural selection or evolutionary pressures where that's not the case anymore
0: yeah so i think we we gotta first zoom out a little bit and then we'll zoom in one is by zoom out i mean like homo habilis for example like the first genus of the human species that goes back three million years ago now if we fast forward to homo sapiens homo sapien timeline is basically 300,000 years ago. So significantly short amount of time with our modern human species. So if we just focus, I think it's, we should just focus on a homo sapien because mm-hmm. homo habilis is genetically quite different than homo sapien. And by what I mean by that, the diet was different. At, you, would, you would look at homo habilis and you think that could potentially be some kind of ape homo sapien you're like okay i see human right homo erectus is much more similar to homo sapien uh than i would say homo habilis i mean it is evolutionary time in the evolutionary time scale but if we just look at homo sapien 300 years and kind of what i like to do is like to help people kind of put this in perspective if we put those 300 years on a 24-hour clock the agricultural revolution was one hour ago at hour twenty-three. So for the first twenty-three hours, are, we're hunter-gatherers, Homo sapiens, and then for just for the last hour is when we started agriculture, and really just for like the last couple minutes is when industrial revolution. So that kind of puts things in perspective. Our genes have changed, Homo sapiens genes. For example, the ability to drink milk uh called lactase persistence where generally this lactase enzyme we lose the ability to produce lactase as we are weaned off uh breastfeeding however especially people of european descent tend to have more lactase persistence which is a genetic change so you can't see genetic changes in thousands of years time scales but they are quite small <laughs> right so it's like there's small genetic changes it's not like you start eating a totally different diet like oh 10,000 years ago we are hunter gatherers but over the last 10,000 years now we're vegetarians like the not like that kind of genetic drift uh so there are uh some genetic changes but we are f- the 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 genes we have today are far more like very similar to what we were 10,000 years ago for example okay and so I do think there is hope uh meaning you not to overcomplicate this, but there's also an epigenetic component as well. And epigenetic components can be passed down from (laughs) hereditarily as well. So there is hope uh, by chewing and getting high nutrition as a child, having proper oral posture, things like that, will, I believe, greatly reduce one's risk of malocclusion and kind of the sequela of uh, airway issues.
1: Okay. Tell me then what what in your mind is... the appropriate diet, like what uh, what is a realistic, what should we be eating as, as, as humans? What do our teeth tell us we should be eating? So, you know, we're omnivores, we have molars, we have canines, you know, we're obviously designed to eat some degree of meat and, you know, other natural fruits, vegetables, nuts and things. But like what, what in your mind and in your research is an optimal diet that human beings in a perfect setting should be eating that, that fit our mouths for what we are designed to eat?
0: Yeah, so... We are omnivores, meaning we can eat plants and we can eat animals. What I think is super interesting is if we look at the animal kingdom, omnivores tend to specialize. Most omnivores tend to specialize eating plants or animals. I believe it's 70 plus percent of omnivores are either plant specialists or animal specialists. I believe humans are omnivores that are animal specialists and though that's the technical term for that is a hypercarnivore so a hypercarnivore is an omnivore that specializes in animals and roughly 70 plus percent of their diet is animal based foods And i believe we fit into that category meaning 70% of our diet or more should be composed of animal based foods and the extra the the plant material i evolutionary speak i think what is most consistent would be roots and fruits uh so there's good evidence that with the advent of fire, about roughly 500,000 years ago, the roots became a more substantial part of the human diet. We can see that with our salivary amylase gene that is persistent. Uh, so we would like we were likely digging up roots and cooking roots, but before fire, we're not eating a lot of roots. Like those are basically indigestible. <laughs> so with fire, though, it seems like roots did take up a, a larger percent of the diet, and fruits would always have been. Certain locations, seasons, et cetera. So some human populations would have had more excesses, access to fruit than others. For example, those living in the tundra would have had no access to fruits. Those in more, you know, obvious uh, temperate uh, climates would have had seasonal access to various kinds of fruits. So I believe 70% plus meat, 30% can be uh, more of the ancestrally consistent plant foods, which I think would be roots, fruits, some honey in there. Uh, and I think that's kind of an optimal diet.
1: Okay. What is you know, and obviously we're we're trying to apply an optimal ancestral diet to the restrictions of of modern amenities and modern life. So uh, we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about what you eat on a daily basis. And obviously, like you said, you're not advocating for everybody to eat like this. But what uh, what being specific, like the types of foods that you're eating, um, the type of foods that you would promote, like your patients, um, kids that you're seeing to be eating on a regular basis. What are the type of foods that we you know, would be ideal? And then what are foods that are maybe okay? And then what are the things that we really should be, be avoiding to kind of match the, the, uh, our diet with our ancestral qualities of what we're eating?
0: Yeah. So what I do is I actually, you know, I'm in St. Louis. I, uh, there's three farms that I mostly, I know the farmers and I buy a side of cow from them i keep them in deep freezer and like the deep freezer in my basement is basically my grocery store and i just pull up because that way you get you're getting high quality meat grass-fed grass-finished like, to me this is like the optimal situation uh not that you have to have that but if we we're going to talk about hey what's the the best kind of food you can eat grass fed grass-finished beef i eat the whole thing meaning like i'll eat the liver everything that the the farmer can legally give me i'm going to eat it it includes the heart and the liver uh those are the main two kind of Mm-hmm. organs that, that that come with it can't eat the brain for all kinds of uh, legal reasons sure <laughs> yeah um, so i do that i do pasture eggs and currently right now i also have a lady she she's the one that, that also i get the eggs from uh eggs and raw, raw goat's milk actually so i've been drinking raw goats milk over the last year this has not been a long-term thing but i've been working on putting on some weight some good weight putting on some muscles so adding some raw milk to the diet has has helped me with that of you know put on about 20 pounds last year Mm -hmm. so that's what my diet's like i think a close like hey what's good is ruminant meat and so we can distinguish ruminants from monogastrics ruminants are cows lambs uh deer they have a multi-chambered stomach and so even if that cow is finished on grains for example most conventional beef is finished on grains to fatten up the cow uh they uh because of their rumen, they are able to process that and the quality of that meat is still quite high. It's comparable to grass-fed grass finish. There's differences, but it's comparable. It's a different story than a chicken, who is a mon- which is a monogastric animal that's eating soy and corn and that degrades the, especially the fat quality of that animal. So it, pork as well. So pork, pigs are eating their monogastrics. So I stick mostly with uh, beef. I'll have some chicken and pork and seafood as well. Seafood is great, but a lot of seafood is you know, contaminated with heavy heavy metals these days. So you kind of, you know, I, I wouldn't only eat seafood unless you're really sourcing it <laughs> intelligently. Uh, but some seafood's totally good. Like I said, I eat the organs in, in proportion to the animal, but I don't just go out of my way and eat just tons of liver or anything like that. Uh, now, so, so I guess that's how I'd say the, the best good solutions and then things to avoid. To me, there's really one food that I just never eat and that is vegetable seed oils. I, I think they're toxic on a number of levels, so I don't eat anything with vegetable seed oils at all. Um, sugar, I think it's smart to limit it, but I think it's actually less toxic than vegetable seed oils. So that's just how I, just to put that in perspective of like my hierarchy of, <laughs> of foods that I avoid. Uh, but junk food is classically the combination of those two things. You'll just see it's high in a vegetable seed oil and high in sugar and maybe some flour in there as well. And that's like almost the definition of junk food. So th- those are the foods that
1: I avoid. <laughs> gotcha. What if you, uh, you know, keeping this pediatric centric, uh, you know, let's say in the future you have kids um, and, you know, you're trying to apply these principles under the theory, man, if I, if I, you know, am I feeding my kids like the optimal diet? You know, at least I can do everything in my power to kind of stimulate the muscles of mastication, stimulate, you know, osteoblastic development, laying down more bones, stronger bone, stronger, stronger muscles, stronger teeth, and maybe give them a chance at, uh, bigger jaws, more room, better airway, and all the things that are related to it. We're aware of. So, what uh, what research or what uh, advice might you give if we're trying to educate some young families and say, "I need a knee exam." Infantot comes in, and you get one of those, you know, more motivated parents that wants to have a diet conversation with you, uh, and you're that provider. What what are you walking them through as far as like early years? Because obviously, once the damage is done, it's done. You know, if somebody comes in and they're 14 years old, you you know, the the jaws on its way out from being done developing, right? So these are obviously factors that apply really early in in development. So tell me like some tips you have for like early diet and what might be optimized for like early childhood development as far as a diet goes.
0: Absolutely. So I don't have any children of my own, at least not yet. Um, My girlfriend has a 12 year old and we've been together for a long time. So I've seen how he's grown up. My brother's got six kids and I've been around. We spent a lot of time together. I do pediatric dentistry. So I'm seeing a lot of kids behaviors miles what they eat et etc what I would do and what I recommend is let's just, we could start with the almost a slightly older pediatric demographic because I've seen a lot of this first thing I would do is first of all kids eat small amounts of food and they have high demands for growth and so you need to make every bite count and the way I'm gonna make every bite count is hey we're gonna eat the meat part of our meal first don't give them the fruit first don't give them the whatever the, the I'll call the extras first we're gonna eat the meat first uh and then we can go on if you're gonna have fruit you're gonna have vegetables on the sides whatever but I would I would start there because I I think let's be realistic let's just from a realistic perspective because I just think of my girlfriend's son just that is enough is like trying to you know pull teeth mm-hmm. <laughs> so th- I would start th- with that now if we kind of go younger same kind of principles apply uh focus on meat fruits roots uh or are, are what i go to next and then anything beyond that is that we just make it really clear it's occasional it's a treat it's not an every meal thing it's not an everyday thing uh, especially when it comes to these snack foods i mean you have a child now you i think you'll see soon you probably already know all kids talk about is when's the next snack and from a behavior standpoint and just like keeping your sanity as a parent, I think it's probably wise to like set some ground rules around these snack foods. Like these are not everyday things. These are special occasions only. Uh, I think that'll go a long way in terms of just your sanity, but also the child's health. And then if we go really young, like more infant age, breastfeeding is ideal. It's going to stimulate the oral facial muscles. Ideally, it's going to provide the ideal nutrition for the best <laughs> chance at fully developing the jaws. And then as we move from breastfeeding to Solid foods. There's something called baby led weaning, which I'm a big fan of. Is basically you start giving the kid and letting the letting the child eat with its own hands. You don't give them a spoon. You're not ba- spoon feeding them. Uh, and so baby led weaning. That's a, a big topic. Uh, we won't be able to do justice right now, but that is the kind of where I recommend people go into there. Uh, sure
1: about that more because i just had this conversation with my wife yesterday and i think that's pretty relevant this is something i had never heard of before but when i told my wife that you were coming on we started talking about it because our daughter's almost four months um Mm -hmm. still kind of nursing but then introducing a bottle and occasional some formula to top things off but uh i was i was telling her because i'm obviously i eat a lot of meat i'm a really big bow hunter i eat a lot of deer and so we were talking about this and and I, i pictured myself you know when a little latents, like a, you know, holding her head up, starting to eat, maybe she's seven, eight months old, just taking like a, like a, a rack of rib that's cooked or something and set the rib and, you know, or, a, or, a you know, some sort of steak with a bone and then just picturing her grabbing the whole thing and just biting chunks of it. And it's funny in my head, but that's actually not far off, you know, instead of giving highly processed chicken nuggets and hot dogs and things that don't actually require any mechanical chewing, you know, giving them a chunk of meat on a bone. They're that actually, that's supposed to be less of a choking hazard, I guess with the bone on it is what my wife was telling me, but maybe walking through what you kind of envision like, like that child, led, child led weaning look like. Cause it is, it seems like it's a, a feeding schedule that's picking up a little bit of attention now.
0: Yeah. And it's a lot, there, there's many parts to baby led weaning. Cause uh, I would say almost a small part of it is the actual nutrition that comes along with that with that eating. A lot of it is okay. At six months, they're now they're, hold, they're holding themselves up. They're able to grab, hold things with their hand, start gnawing at it, start gaining independence around food. uh So that that's a big part of it. And yeah, and like you like you described, it is very much like hey, you give them a bone first, have them gnaw on the bone. That's going to do stuff for their dexterity. It's going to do stuff with their jaw. Uh, You can also incorporate – it's not to say you can't incorporate and I would probably would incorporate food that is cut up. So small enough, they're able to grab with their hands, eat it, uh, eat with their hands basically. And that's the gist of baby-led weaning. There's – I mean it it can go quite detailed but you don't need to complicate it much much more than that it's like you start getting weaning on to real food but you get let get but there's a degree of into baby independence and they're they're kind of leading the way and it's a supplement to like you said the breastfeeding and or the formula uh bottle bottle feeding as well so then mm-hmm. yeah it sounds like
1: your wife is studying up on it. She, she's, she is on Instagram too much is the actual answer to that question. She's easily influenced, but uh, she's, uh, she's on top of it, but it's, you know, with the advent of social media and Instagram, there's a lot of influencers that, you know, if I've learned anything from having a kid, it's that young early moms now are very well connected. They're all on, you know, if something catches fire, it becomes very trendy in a hurry, whether mm. a good or a bad trend is, you know, is questionable there, but that's one of those um, picked up speeds. So, yeah, you know, I guess it, it kind of goes back. Yeah, you know, I, I can't remember the direction I was taking this here, but I know that, you know, you, you're going back to like like that natural diet. You know, you think of what did our, you know, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 years ago, what did our young children ancestors eat at the time when they were two and three? You know, the th- they weren't eating chicken. You thinking of everything that our modern kids eat when they think when parents are like, oh, we have a lot of meat. But it's actually like chicken nuggets, which are, you know, all ground up and Lord knows what's in them. It's hot dogs. It's 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 just things that are even like ground meat, which I eat tons of ground meat as well. But there's not a lot of kids that, on a daily basis, actually bite into a chunk of steak or, or something that's chewy, you know. So, um, you know, it, it's it's pretty enlightening to see, like that. You know, you can definitely envision how these changes in modern diet now, and it's only going to get worse, you know, because this isn't something being talked about. So it kind of scares you, you know. The, the trend, it's almost how normalized it is for, you know, what percentage of our patients that come in now where you see kids when they're 10 years old, they, you know, the number of kids that need have bilateral crossbites, knee expanders, they have huge tonsils, they're mouth breathers, high arch palate. And it's just like, it's so normal, I'm impacted wisdom, to, wisdom teeth, but nobody ever really stops and, and looks at it from a big picture standpoint and says like, what what is this all why is this the case? Because from you know, if our ancestors had these problems, like if everybody walked around with this crowd, you know, there'd be so many abscess, infected teeth, impacted teeth, and problems. And it it just is such a modern phenomenon. It's really fascinating to talk about this from a, a big picture, you know, forward thinking standpoint.
0: Yeah, I agree. I gave a talk recently this year, uh, and someone came up to me after it, and they said the most startling point of it was, I said. Uh, Donald K is the most common disease in the world, uh, okay. non-communicable d- disease in the world. And he's like, I never even thought about cavities as being a disease because it is so normalized. It's just like, it's just, it's just part of everyday life. Like Everyone has cavities, uh, but no, it's not. It was just that we have normalized a pathology that is not normal, at least, especially <laughs> if we go turn to the, like our ancestral record prior to agriculture and we're like, yeah, we don't, we, these fossil teeth and these teeth, they preserve for millions of years in the fossil record. They didn't have cavities, but then we see this dramatic rise of cavities when we start eating, you know, grain-based high carbohydrate diets and things just get, you know, exponentially worse with the industrial revolution or when we start refining these, increasing the surface area, you know, for more surface area for, for, uh, for bacteria to ferment into acids. And so, I mean, that's why we have the most, that's why we have job security, but also <laughs> why cavities are the most common disease in
1: the world. <laughs> Yeah, I saw actually a graph yesterday on one of the sites I was on. And, you know, I try to avoid being, you know, disclaimer that some of the things I say might be bro science because I'm not exactly giving quotes of where this stuff came from. But I did see a chart that compared the rates of decay uh, historically over the past, I don't know how many thousands of years, and then the advent of, of corn, like planted corn or maize. And the lines are very, very tightly correlated. Like, you know, even I, I gave that example of Ozi the Ice Iceman, there's a a couple big articles written on why he had cavities. They've done scans of his mouth. It's the oldest preserved, you know, human, wet mummy, human, I think that we have, he's like five, 6,000 years old, but he had really bad teeth and bad cavities. But they said that he was growing, you know, lived in an area where they were planting corn and had developed, you know, subsistence farming at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, and modern, you know, not modern agriculture, but agriculture. And so they, they are seemingly finding that tight link between growing corn and cavities which is interesting and and makes a lot of sense there as well
0: yeah corn worse than other crops it it tends to be what what they've seen um at least you know over over the last since the agricultural revolution corn is especially bad It's interesting why i mean maybe we should dive into why that is more so than wheat perhaps but wheat also is associated with decay Mm
1: -hmm. you know now i'm thinking what are you know This is cool to talk about from a theoretical standpoint, but maybe harder to talk about practically like what things we can do. Um, You know, I guess you obviously we talked about we can you can do education, but to your point, most of the time in our practices, you're just putting out fires, right? You're trying to take care of abscesses. And a lot of parents, you can't even get them to brush their kids teeth for them, let alone have a deep discussion about you know, if you can get them to not put juice in the shopping cart, that's your win for the day, let alone, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, if a kiddo has kind of a crummy diet, you had that conversation, you know, we're seeing a lot of airway things. Um, you know, we, we haven't really talked a lot because it's its own conversation on what are some, you know, th- this is a, a big can of worms and there's a lot of pediatric dentists that are very airway centric and, and focus on the problems here and now diagnosing coming up with things. But it seems like I, I do check a lot of tonsil removal. Like I, I like to chart airway scores, um, Brodsky scales. Uh, and I, I do send a lot of kids to get tonsils out. We do a lot of palatal expanders. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to catch those early to try to get in front of like OSA oh, things before they happen. And I know a lot of pediatricians don't look at that and things. But what, what are some things when you're looking and you're having those conversations, if you get a patient that's a little bit more parent, that's a little bit more proactive and, and is concerned about obstructive sleep apnea, concerned about crowding, wants to do the things they can do now, even though their kid is halfway developed like what are what are some things that you look at to kind of help the child out with their airway in the here and now
0: i think like what you said is one of the like education i think is the most important thing and if you tell someone hey we see this narrow arch dental crowding early we do some expansion work now this could save you thousands and thousands of dollars of orthodontic treatment later and uh, money's a big motivator though so you tell someone to change their diet and yeah, it's kind of like in one ear out the other even if you tell them like don't change your diet you're gonna get cavities you're gonna have a big dental bill it seems like that is a much more difficult lifestyle change than being able to say hey i do see a vaulted palate and you know, you know this you know this crowding that is a high likelihood to lead to the need for orthodontics that perhaps you can avoid some maybe not but give us your best chance at avoiding it if we do some expansion work examples my i have a brother who's a year older than me he's an ophthalmologist now so he's also went uh, in the health field but he had a palatal expander when he was a kid ne- ne- never need braces after that i didn't have a palatal expander guess what i had headgear i had braces i had my wisdom teeth taken out i had the works mm-hmm. uh and so i mean i know it's not a perfect example but i i think pediatric dentist. i mean from a preventive standpoint especially if you're doing expansion stuff. Uh, there's stuff I'm sure you know, like myobrace systems. It's an Australian-based uh, kind of preventative measures, which I think is super important to get proper oral posture, get people breathing through their nose. That'll
1: go a long way. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting, not ethical and not like possible, but it'd be interesting if you had a patient population and you could create a, you know, a clinical trial of some kind to take, you know, if you, if you could take 100 kids, at birth, and 50 of them, you put on you know a very heavy baby led weaning from the start. Um, you know you have a nursing baby led weaning, lots of like meat that's cooked but not processed, where they're chewing a lot, using a lot of chewing, and you know stick to that diet. And then an equal subset, or you know a population where you know that's kind of more of a control that you just have eat like a modern diet, and then compare crowding and outcomes. You know I, I don't think it's a study that ever be possible to do, but that would really be what it would take to to really solidify you know, some of the things that we're talking about, that they hold some weight, you know, from a, from a um, clinical standpoint, I suppose. So, in in maybe in another country, another point in time, I'd love to see that trial happen and see what kind of results we get.
0: Yeah, it would be very interesting, especially twin studies. And I know Dr. John Mew, who's the the father of orthotropics, did some twin studies where he would treat someone with orthotropics, basically, you know, oral posture, perhaps some devices to aid in oral posture, et cetera, versus traditional orthodontics and compared these twin studies of with the results and so he's he's done you know a little bit of that kind of uh study from an i would say oral posture perspective but i think from a dietary perspective it'd be super super interesting
1: really cool you know uh, as we kind of start tailoring wrapping up here there's there's a lot of other things i know that you're involved in that people might find interesting your pediatric dentists gen- dentists in general seem to be oftentimes pretty health conscious not all the times but you know it, like a lot of them, big, you know, a lot of us work out, take care of our health, try to eat right. You know, a few of us are raging crazy alcoholics and all the other things. But like, if you have some of the listeners here that maybe are interested in learning more about like meat based diets, like, what are some resources that you promote? Are there courses? You know, if you have concerns, like, what is this going to do to my? GI system getting used to that what are the benefits like people that want to look more into the like the the research and the functionality and education behind this where where's a good place to start what are some resources what kind of things do you offer uh, what what is a place that you can start there
0: yeah you, you so i have this site that i run it's called the meat dot health literally just meat dot health uh and there's all kinds of resources there's everything from like a 30-day guide to you know getting started on an all meat diet now that's if someone really does the research and they're like hey i want to try this thing uh but there's also like i wrote a ebook it's like a 80 page book on hey why might you want to experiment with taking various kinds of plant-based foods out of your diet it's because that's eye-opening to a lot of people to be like wait all fruit and vegetable isn't inherently good because that i mean that's what most people believe like fruits and vegetables you eat as much as you can they're all good for you right uh but no why is it when people remove these from their diet that they see health benefits so th- i have an ebook on that about it's called health dangers of a plant-based diet kind of a clickbaity title but uh <laughs> but uh it, it, eye-opening for a lot of people so th- there's a it's, there's all kinds of resources on that as, as well as answering a lot of the questions you brought up like isn't meat gonna give me cancer? Isn't gonna give me type two diabetes? <laughs> so, all of those kinds of answers on meat.health, uh, which is the place I go. There's all kinds of resources, but that there's a lot of resources there.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's see. What about if you have airway stuff? Is there is there any? Um, what about your appliance that you have? Uh, any airway related courses? Like if somebody's interested, say maybe we've got some GP uh, is listening and maybe want some airway info or on your, uh, uh appliance that you made, do you have a, a link for that at all?
0: Yeah. So the appliance is called the Ned device NED and the website's ned.rest, NED.rest, um uh, which is not available right now, but hopefully we're, we're commercializing right now. So hopefully in the next, within the next, by roughly the end of the year, we should have mass produced it. So that's what we're doing right now. So look very much excited about that. Uh, so that's that as far as like courses on airway health, man, I've done tons of CE on it. I'm just trying to think what is the best that I've done. It, it depends on what you're looking to do for like a dentist looking to do dental sleep medicine there. I could recommend all kinds of courses for a general review of airway health. It's, it's interesting. I don't know what I'd recommend. Lots of good books. You know what a great book is for just kind of just general breathing for, I'll say more of a lay person audience. Would be, which is not necessarily your audience at all, but uh, mm. James Nestor's book "Breath," which is uh, was a bestseller. I don't know if you've read that, but
1: I've heard it. yeah, I haven't read it. I've heard, I've heard it cited multiple times on online.
0: You yeah, are like, "You got to read it! You got to read it!" Because I mean, I've just been in this space for a long time, and I was always like, "Yeah, I'm not going to read it." Whatever, it's just it's a commercial book. But you know what? He did a fantastic job. Expo- like in a very enjoyable read. I, was, I remember I was reading that book, and I was reading uh, a book by Dr. Daniel Lieberman incredibly like more like a textbook that you read i'm reading these books at the same time and the james Nestor book i'm like i'm i'm reading this one it's more enjoyable long story short that's a great book breath uh it's a great introduction to a lot of these issues Uh, he doesn't talk about the nutrition so much but a lot of the the airway stuff
1: gotcha and then you have uh, a bunch of stuff on social media you post a lot you're pretty you know you, you post a lot of good stuff on facebook and instagram people can find you there as well Yep,
0: I, I, I'm posting about meat all day, every day, because I feel like it seems crazy, but I I believe health is important, like one of the most important things in everyone's life. And one of the biggest things people can do just to drastically improve their own health is replace a lot of your, what your current diet is, or some of it at least, with more red meat. And it seems wild, but like that simple piece of health advice will take people further than, than they can imagine. Like you don't necessarily have to eat 70% of your diet of red meat, even though I think it's doable for most people. Start itching towards making each of your meals have a solid piece of meat on each plate. And that'll take you further than most people can imagine.
1: You know, okay. So the last question or two I had here, you know, whenever I see you post these, uh, your stories on Instagram and stuff of what you're eating, it seems like it's a lot of the same general things like you talked about. You have a, a burger or a piece of steak and then some eggs and some raw milk. And that's like, you have that for a lot of very consistent meals. Do you ever, like in my head, like I'm kind of a foodie. So even though I'm interested in that, like whenever I make a meal like that, I end up doctoring it up. Like, do you ever, or do you recommend, like, is it an okay thing to get in and throw some guacamole on there? Like maybe put a side of some pico or something, like something to kind of throw some cheese on it. Like you got to kind of pizzazz this food up a little bit once in a while to keep people uh, interested, right?
0: Yes, I, th- I think it's totally fine for most people unless you have like some kind of serious medical condition that we're trying to get to underlying cause. Uh, you know what is super interesting? Seven years ago, I started eating just meat. And before that, I liked to add all kinds of spices and mustards and, you know, you know doctor stuff up. Over time, I liked my meat cooked more and more rare, less and less stuff to the point where like – I prefer it as you see it. It's just a plain piece of meat, eggs, raw milk. All I add is a little bit of salt, like nothing else. And I do it not only because – I do it mostly because, like, I prefer it that way. I don't want I don't want anything. I don't want hot sauce on my eggs, for example, which I know a lot of people do that. But uh, my taste changed over time, my preferences. And so I just prefer, like, really rare meat, <laughs> red meat. Uh, I like – you know, nothing on my eggs, but some salt. Uh, and so I think it's totally fine. Like I said, for people to spice it up for foodies, uh, unless there's people with certain like autoimmune conditions, especially that they just can't seem to resolve. Like you can't get to the heart of what's their problem. Eczema, eczema, you you know, you name whatever the autoimmune condition is. Then I think it could be important to take something like maybe everything out for 90 days. One thing I do with, with people is we do a 90 day, Ultimate 90 Day Carnivore Challenge is what it's called. So it's 90 days where it's pretty darn strict, and it's because we, well, uh, 90 days for a few reasons. But one, is it takes the immune system sometimes to calm down after an insult in about roughly 90 days. But then after that, we we introduce foods and we we figure out like what's someone's ideal diet. Uh, so that's kind of a long winded answer. That yes, you can definitely doctor up your food, but there are certain times where I recommend not doing it for a period of time.
1: Cool. Well, I will tell you what, if you uh, you know, I know it sounds like you get your beef a lot of times locally sourced grass fed and all that but uh I, I didn't get any pickup that you're a hunter and we have a lot of vegetarians i know i've got a lot of which is cool i got a lot of vegans vegetarians that are pediatric dentists and i love them all the same i've, I've actually had a couple like three-star podcast reviews that's like you talk too much about hunting and eating meat and stuff i'm like that's fine i'll take that hit but um, yeah no if you uh if you ever are interested in doing a about one and eating, you know, some white, tea. I don't know if you've had venison before, but I eat an awful, I eat probably a couple hundred meals of venison every year. So I don't know if you've experimented with that, but, uh, it's, it's pretty fantastic if you haven't.
0: It is fantastic. And I would eat more of it, uh, especially it tends to be a little bit leaner though. So that, that's the one thing that I would, I recommend if someone's just eating meat, you definitely need to have enough fat because you don't want to just try and live on just protein or, exactly. you know, low, low fat, very, very high protein. You won't feel good in a short order. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Cool. All right. Can, anything else, uh, any like other links, shout out contact info? Um, I didn't cover It's great having you on. I just, before we sign off, is there anything else you want people to, to know or to, um, to, to sign off with here?
0: Well, thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed the conversation. I think one thing I was going to ask you, which I think is an interesting thing for our this demographic to listen to or to ask, would be: mm-hmm. if you couldn't use oral hygiene products, you couldn't brush your teeth. All right, you couldn't use any mouthwashes or anything like that. What would you be willing to eat to risk not getting cavities? Uh, like, would your diet change?
1: Ooh, that's it's it's interesting. I just wrote a uh, I wrote a very detailed page front and back for the parents that want very, you know, why does my kid keep having cavities? And instead of me sitting there for 15 minutes, they don't remember it. I typed up a big newsletter on this. And one of the lines I put in there was, you know, in theory, you know, there's a lot of factors you can control and can't control. But if somebody just eats like meat and, you know, doesn't have any, you know, quick fermentable sugars in their diet and is just eating meat, like in theory, your decay rate is going to be almost non-existent. So that's basically the big tool you got, you know, unless you're in there with your finger scrubbing, you know, you just, you have to control the amount of sugar in your diet would be my answer to that question.
0: Yeah. I think about it a lot. I'm like, if I couldn't brush my teeth or anything, like would I eat a lot of fruit? No, (laughs) like fruit, we we, fruit healthy. I think some of the diet is fine, but it's like I personally would be. I would, like, I would be a little bit afraid to eat fruit with every meal. I'd be mm-hmm. afraid to eat. I, I, it would probably just be meat and maybe some like fibrous vegetables. Right. <laughs> so That's the only thing I'd feel comfortable over a long duration of time if I couldn't use oral hygiene products. I think it's a, just an interesting question for people to think about uh, because, like, if your diet would change because you couldn't, because you couldn't brush your teeth, like, mm-hmm. like you can't brush your arteries, right? So it's it's a, just a, an interesting thought experiment.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's you kind of see the same thing where you get those families where the kids open your mouth and it's a twelve year old and he has, you know, plaque caked over all the teeth and he clearly doesn't have good home care and good brushing, but he doesn't have cavities, you know, and so obviously there's a lot of factors that go into it. He obviously has pretty good enamel, but a lot of times those kids aren't slamming mountain you know they tend to have not t- as much sugar in their diet otherwise they'd be bombed out so those are always interesting case studies too it's like this is an example i tell parents that i'm like the only reason he doesn't have a mouthful of big cavities is because you're not giving him capri suns and fruit snacks all day because if he starts that like he's gonna bomb out and parents are like, yeah, like, he only really, really wants to water i'm like that's awesome so at least we got that going for us
0: yep you know? and that goes a long way so yeah i just think it's interesting yeah again thanks for having me on uh I think we covered a lot of, a lot of the main stuff. So I, yeah, I, there's, I think there's, gonna, there's a lot of places we could dive up, uh, you know, a hundred miles deeper, but uh,
1: it was, it was really just, to just to get people interested in it. I think it was a, a good, like summarized conversation to just get at least people thinking about, you know, maybe adding, you know, moby meat is not as bad as what we thought. Maybe there's benefits to it and this is how it's relevant to our patient population. So I think we at least stimulated some good conversation, which is cool. Awesome. Cool, Kevin. Yeah, thank you again for coming on. And uh, if you ever, you know, uh, find yourself in Troy, Missouri, want to stop by and go go get some steaks or something, you let me know. All right, that sounds good. We'll do.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Be sure to DM our host Casey Getz on social media with any listener questions, comments, or tough political situations. We'll see you next week for another unfiltered episode.